Welcome to Creation, Myth, or Miracle. This is your host, ex-atheist Richard Walker. Welcome to another show of Creation, Myth, or Miracle. And since biblical creation is considered to be mythical and impossible by mainstream science, let's focus for today on what it is they believe is possible and what it is they believe actually occurred. And since, as Richard Dawkins has said, it is absolutely safe to say that if you meet someone who claims not to believe in evolution, that person is ignorant, stupid, or insane. And since I don't want to be ignorant, stupid, or insane, let's try to believe in evolution today and let's take a look at what it claims. We're discussing evolution as popularly taught Probably what most of you, unless you have a Ph.D. in molecular biology and pay attention to evolution theory, not really necessary to do laboratory science, so many of you have not. But we're talking about what is taught to people in public schools and what is constantly in the press and the media and the popular level books by people such as Dawkins, Davies, etc. First, the term evolution is used to mean a lot of things. It's often claimed that, well, evolution has nothing to do with the origin of life. Well, that's nonsense. Biological evolution has nothing to do with the origin of life, but there is also cosmic evolution, generally considered to be the Big Bang, solar system evolution, usually the nebular hypothesis, stellar evolution, how stars change and evolve, galaxy evolution, how galaxies change and evolve. Well, let's not forget that, per Stephen Hawking. There are some unsolved problems in the Big Bang, and they happen to include the origin of stars and the origin of galaxies. So don't even kid yourself that the evolution of stars and galaxies is truly well understood. And then there's also chemical evolution, which was life from non-life by purely natural means, which would mean physics and chemistry. But that's not what we want to talk about today. We're going to focus on evolution within living things, biological evolution. And it's usually just referred to as Darwinian evolution. It's actually more properly called the modern evolutionary synthesis, which is slightly different, or neo-Darwinism. But the basic idea is mutations cause changes to the content of the DNA. This occurs in an undirected way, no intelligence, no goals in mind. And then natural selection selects from among the resulting variants that occur because of the changes to the DNA. And in fact, you will often hear statements like natural selection selecting for a mutation or selecting for a gene. That is completely impossible. A gene does not live or die. A mutation doesn't live or die. Only an actual creature lives or dies. And natural selection only works on the entire creature. It's called the phenotype. You could think of that as the body. It's the entire creature itself. The genotype is the genetic content of the creature. Mutations modify the genotype. That modification must affect the phenotype in order for natural selection to do anything. Almost always it's a negative effect. If it's a very large effect and negative, it kills the creature. So natural selection eliminates the unfit. But supposedly you could have that type of a genotype change, a change to the genetics, that results in a phenotype change, some type of change to the creature itself, which is large enough and positive enough 
that it conveys a an advantage. And natural selection allows creatures with that advantage to reproduce more than the creatures without it. And eventually that advantage works its way through the entire population and becomes part of the standard genome for that type of creature. And every single new feature that gets you all the way from the first living cell to every other creature that has ever lived, including man, must have arisen by precisely this means. So let's summarize it one more time. Mutations cause changes to the genetic content. The changes to the genetic content cause changes to the creature itself. And these changes are positive enough and beneficial enough to be acted upon by natural selection. We'll talk as though it's a force because that's how evolutionists talk about it. And natural selection selects these positive changes and those slow, gradual positive changes add up to the entire change from an amoeba to a man. That's the theory of evolution in a nutshell. And as that nutshell is presented to the popular press and to the population in general. Now, regarding what's taught to actual experts in evolution, that's a different story. For example, back in 1999, a Smithsonian biologist said, the modern evolutionary synthesis convinced most biologists that natural selection was the only directive influence on adaptive evolution. Today, however, dissatisfaction with the synthesis is widespread, and creationists and anti-Darwinians are multiplying. The central problem with the synthesis is its failure to show or to provide distinct signs that natural selection of random mutations could account for observed levels of adaptation. In other words, those who are knowledgeable look at the actual data and realize the Darwinian story is insufficient to explain it. But that's not what you're taught. We're discussing Darwinian evolution as usually presented to the general public. And that is mutations, changing the DNA, plus natural selection, account for all the changes that occur. So given that, how does the history of life appear? We want to look at the popular description of the tree of life. The notion that there is the universal common ancestor at the root of the tree of life, and that all living creatures have branched off from that tree. So picture a tree with a single root. Picture branches beginning to branch off from that tree, just like any tree out in your yard, and many branches branching off from those branches, and you can get lots of branches. And if you start at the tip of any branch, you could find your way all the way back to the root by just following the tree. And that pathway is supposed to represent the evolutionary history of the organism at the tip of the branch. And we often think that the disagreements or discussion among evolutionists is just about the nature of individual branches, and perhaps there's a little adjustment here and there as new fossils are found, etc. Couldn't be further from the truth. Well, how important is this concept of a tree? New Scientist had an article out in 2009. On the cover, it says, Darwin was wrong, cutting down the tree of life. In that article, they noted, without it, the theory of evolution would never have happened. The tree also helped carry the day for evolution. Ever since Darwin, the tree has been the unifying principle. And in fact, the notion of a tree is used as an assumption 
and as a framework or skeleton into which observational data gets placed. So when a fossil is found, they decide where to put it within the tree of life. Well, the tree of life concept is pretty darn easy to understand. So what's the problem? Why would new scientists have an article saying Darwin was wrong and the tree needs to be cut down? What is going on here? Well, essentially what's going on is we're learning more about life. As we gather more data, especially genetic data, we're finding out that it contradicts the assumptions, the way the tree was built, based upon looking at the external characteristics of creatures. In other words, before we could look closely into the genome, the only way to design and build the tree of life, and the only way to decide who inherited characteristics from whom, who was descended from whom, was based upon how does the creature look at the creature level. And as we began to be able to look closely into the genome, it was absolutely fully expected that the genetic data would absolutely fully match the phenotype data, that we would get the same tree if we looked at genetic characteristics. Oops. As early as 1993, some biologists were proposing that the tree was really more like a web. As more molecular data has become available, biologists have become increasingly polarized, with some doggedly defending the tree concept, while others argue that the notion is obsolete and needs to be discarded. We have no evidence at all that the tree of life is a reality, says Eric Batiste, an evolutionary biologist at the Pierre and Marie Curie University in Paris, France. Yet Darwin had argued that the tree of life was a fact of nature. Biologist W. Ford Doolittle says that the tree of life concept was absolutely central to Darwin's thinking, going so far as to say that without it, evolutionary theory would never have happened. As Baptiste says, if you don't have a tree of life, what does it mean for evolutionary biology? Now, don't be misled. These scientists are not giving up on evolution. They are still evolutionists, but they are noting that the tree concept simply doesn't work. So what do you think happened when new scientists simply told the truth that there are scientific objections and severe difficulties with the tree of life concept? What do you think happened? Anti-creationist bloggers went insane. They were so angry. One leading anti-creationist blogger writes he is still angry that in the midst of his and other skeptics' efforts, quote, new scientists hands the creationists a propaganda goldmine. Don't buy new scientists. Don't support those who provide support for creationists. Well, what does he mean by provide support for creationists? <laughs> what he's referring to is telling the truth about the data. So if a publication tells the truth about the data, and the truth about the data doesn't support Darwinian evolution, but supports a creationist view, don't tell the truth. Don't buy the magazine. Don't support them. Those people need to be done away with. <laughs> so much for fair play and a discussion of the issues in an open and free-thinking forum. What a joke. Well, are the tree critics just wrong and not doing science properly? I mean, what's going on here? Let's listen to what Doolittle wrote in a science article back in 1999. Molecular phylogeneticists will have failed to find the true tree not because their methods are inadequate or because they have chosen the wrong genes, 
but because the history of life cannot properly be represented as a tree. End quote. Now, what does he mean by choosing the wrong genes? What he's referring to is, let's try to build a tree of life based upon genetics. Well, we have to select which genes are we going to look at. So we select a gene, then we look at the genomic data, we look for commonality in the use of this gene or modifications to this gene, and we then build a tree of supposed evolutionary relationships, that is, common descent type relationships, based upon the gene we selected. Okay, what's the problem? The problem is, when you select another gene and do the same thing, you get a different tree. That makes absolutely no sense whatsoever in terms of Darwinian evolution. In fact, it should be impossible. An article in the Examiner commented on this as follows. Genetic tests on bacteria, plants, and animals increasingly reveal that different species cross-breed and form hybrids more than originally thought, meaning that instead of genes simply being passed down individual branches of the tree of life, they are also transferred between species on different evolutionary paths. The result is a messier and more tangled web of life. And so to think in terms of Darwin's tree is a vast oversimplification. Michael Rose, an evolutionary biologist at the University of California, Irvine, wrote, The tree of life is being politely buried. What's less accepted is that our whole fundamental view of biology needs to change. We're discussing the popular understanding of evolutionary biology and specifically the issue of Darwin's tree of life and the growing issues with the accuracy of that representation. We had just noted that Michael Rose from the University of California at Irvine has said, the tree of life is being politely buried. What's less accepted is that our whole fundamental view of biology needs to change. Well, what might he be referring to? It's the fact that given the tree concept, as I mentioned earlier, you should be able to trace your evolutionary lineage, that is, your descent with modifications, where an individual creature came from, historically speaking, by tracing down the branches of the tree of life backwards toward the common root. Based upon the genetic data that we now have, we know that does not work. If genes can be transferred across branches on different evolutionary paths, as has been stated, then common genes has nothing to do with common descent. And in fact, the new tree of life, if you will, that is now being presented has many changes to the old one that you've seen many times in textbooks, comic books, newspaper articles, magazine articles, etc., let me list some of the fundamental changes. There's no longer a single root. At the bottom, it kind of fuzzes off with several originating roots and says, common ancestral community of primitive cells. So there is no single common ancestor, but rather a community, multiple primitive cells, whatever primitive cells means. That's a rather undefined term. But don't think that these community of cells are all really similar to each other. In fact, they have to be rather different. And in fact, more and more, an enormous amount of genetic information supposedly existed way, way back at the beginning 
but was unused and then somehow showed up and was used later. But leave that as an aside for the moment. Let's just focus on the fact that it's a community of primitive cells at the root of the tree. Now, don't picture this like several trees in an orchard. Picture it with branches from each of these roots coming out of the ground, growing across and attaching to another one. So it's like multiple trees, except that the branches connect the trees together. In fact, you have many, many branches that go horizontally across this structure, so you wind up with a messy web, as was said earlier. So if you start at any node, which is the only points where we have living animals, tip nodes of living creatures, not extinct creatures, and try to determine their evolutionary history, where they came from, by backing down the tree, you can't do it. There are multiple paths. You don't know if... If I follow this path and go across horizontally to that other branch over there, is that the way it happened? Or was that a gene that was horizontally transferred rather than inherited? You have no idea how to determine the phylogeny of any individual creature. In essence, this web idea points out that genetic similarity cannot be used to determine evolutionary history, which completely undercuts the whole notion that it proves the evolutionary history. In fact, you may have heard of horizontal gene transfer, HGT, which is very commonly talked about within evolutionary circles nowadays, and definitely looks like it actually occurs. There's no problem with the laboratory science. But what it shows is genes can move from one type of creature to another in a way that has nothing to do with common ancestry. A recent paper in Trends in Genetics titled Networks Expanding Evolutionary Thinking says the following, Many patterns in this data cannot be represented accurately by a tree. The evolution of genes and viruses and prokaryotes of genomes of all organisms create patterns far more complicated than those portrayed by a simple tree diagram. Genetic restructuring and non-vertical transmission are largely overlooked by a methodological preference for phylogenetic trees and a deep-rooted expectation of tree-like evolution. That may sound a bit complicated, but let's look at it. There's some very interesting things in this statement. First, they point out that it is the genomes of all organisms, not just bacteria, that exhibit these tendencies which destroy the notion of a tree-like structure. You can find evolutionist ranters out there all over the internet that will claim this data only applies to bacteria. They are lying to you. And notice also the interesting statements about a preference for phylogenetic trees and a deep-rooted expectation of tree-like evolution. What's being described here is the mindset of an evolutionist. They deeply want a tree-like structure because, frankly, without it, There is no evolution data at all. Nothing that actually shows descent with modification or common ancestry, or ancestry at all for that matter. The data simply shows which genes are where within creatures, not how they got there. And as we'll show in a minute, this data is completely consistent with a full-on young earth creationist view of life. More later. Hang on. So evolutionists have a deep-rooted expectation of tree-like evolution. That's equivalent to saying they deeply believe in evolution. And this belief causes a methodological preference for phylogenetic trees. In other words, it affects how they interpret the data. 
A phylogenetic tree is simply a Darwinian-type tree of life, where the tree branches show phylogeny, which is developmental history or evolutionary history. The same article describes a lot of the issues with it, pointing out you need a much more complex network, and then also says, by moving beyond the exclusive use of trees and adopting a routine application of networks to genetic data, we can expand the scope of our evolutionary thinking. Notice the data is not allowed to challenge evolutionary thinking at all. It will expand the scope of our evolutionary thinking. Similar verbiage to the notion that any data that contradicts existing evolutionary theory is claimed to shed light or shed new light on evolutionary theory. Previous broadcast. By the way, you need to know also that despite what you may have picked up from out there in the media and in your classes at university or wherever, this is not a new problem. Controversies over exactly how the tree of life should be structured have existed for a long time, and in fact, you could build different phylogenetic trees based upon the observation of common characteristics at the, at the level of the entire creature, as well as at the genetic level. And it was expected that once we gained the genotype comparative data, that would resolve these discussions. The Trends in Genetics article continues, There are long-standing controversies regarding the evolutionary history of many taxonomic groups, and it has been expected by the community that genome-scale data will end these debates. However, to date, none of the controversies has been adequately resolved as an unambiguous tree-like genealogical history using genome data. This is because quantity of data has never been a satisfactory substitute for quality of analysis. Many of the underlying data patterns are not tree-like at all, and the use of a tree model for interpretation will oversimplify a complex reticulate evolutionary process. Reticulate simply means network-like, not tree-like. And just so you don't think the network view solves all the problems, the article says, however, biologists must also keep in mind that networks are not yet free of interpretive challenges. So there's no consistent network diagram either that deals with all the genetic data. And so bottom line is there is no phylogenetic structure, tree or network, no explanation at all that works with the genetic data to explain how creatures evolved into other creatures. So from an evolutionary perspective, the genetic data is a mess. However, it fits perfectly into the notion of an intelligent designer God who created per the description in Genesis. That is, creatures that reproduce after their kinds, but also have the adaptive capability built into their genome structure to adapt to various environments and to provide a lot of diversity. However, they still reproduce within kinds. And so you can build a creationist orchard of several separate trees, individual roots, no cross-branching between them in terms of phylogenetic history, but within the trees, adaptation occurs, so branching within a tree, which is the changes or adaptations within a kind. And hence, you could have lots of different dogs within the canine kind, for example. It's also not surprising for a common intelligent designer to reuse the same or very similar genes within different kinds of creatures. Nor is it a problem to think that there was the built-in ability to move genetic information across the kinds boundary, as another mechanism to allow adaptation. 
In fact, more and more data seems to imply that the genome deliberately self-mutates or self-adapts to environmental changes. Rather interesting, I first read about it from a creationist biochemist 20 years ago. Now, this isn't to say that creationist biologists know the exact boundaries of kinds. There's much discussion and work going on in an attempt to understand what the boundaries are between kinds, but we don't know exactly. However, all the data that we have is completely consistent with the notion of created kinds that reproduce after their kind. And there is no need of the evolutionary concept at all to explain the data that we have in morphology, the appearance of creatures, or the genetics of creatures. So the frequent claims that the data proves the creationist view is nonsense are simply not true. You can trust the Bible. See creationmythormiracle.com 